Lamentations and chapter 3. And we'll read from verse uh, 25, um, we'll read down to verse 39 for sake of brevity. Lamentations chapter 3, verse um, 25. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. He sitteth alone and keepeth silence, because he hath borne it upon him. He putteth his mouth in the dust, if so be there may be hope. He giveth his cheek to him that smiteth him. He is filled full with reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men, to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the right of man before the face of the Most High, to subvert a man in his cause, the Lord approveth not. Who is he that saith that it cometh to pass, when the Lord commandeth it not? Out of the mouth of the Most High proceedeth not evil and good. Wherefore doth a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 39. Now, it was my intention this evening to consider... um, the whole of this passage from verse 26 through to the end of the lament. Um, But having spent some time going through it, I didn't think it would be uh, the best thing to do that. Either we will miss too much or I will be too long. So I thought we would try and shorten it a little bit this evening. But I want to just pick up on one particular theme or thread that runs through these verses. And then next time, God willing, we'll consider uh, some of the other things that come out of the passage um, but before we look at this, this theme that we're going to consider this evening, those of you who were here last time will remember that the prophet had uh, turned a corner. The first 21 verses he had uh, spiralled down, you recall, and he'd gone to this po- got to this point of being almost in a position of despair. But it was when he had reached the rock bottom that he'd begun to look up and uh, he wrestled with God's. And it was then that he remembered God. And last week we saw, didn't he, how he focused on these four key elements of the divine nature. Each element was like a shaft of light that uh, pierced into the gloom of, the, of his prison of despair. He focused on divine compassion there in verse 22, divine faithfulness in verse 23, Then in verse 24, divine sufficiency, that the Lord was his portion. And then lastly, he reflected on divine goodness there in verse 25. And so the prophet has turned this corner. The the fog, the mist has begun to clear for him. In the depths of his despair, he's done the right thing in, in looking up and looking away from his affliction and looking to the Lord. And by having a a clearer apprehension of God, he now has a a clearer understanding of his afflictions. Not just a a clearer understanding, but a correct understanding. And this leads on into this next section 
um, of the lament as it follows through from verse 26 through to the end because the prophet now takes this knowledge and he now then practically really applies it to himself and to those who will listen to him. And of course this is what we should always do with doctrine, isn't it? This is what we should always do when we focus upon the Lord. We should take that and it should produce fruit in our lives. The, the doctrines of God's word should shape our everyday lives, how we think and how we, uh, you know, our characters and our behaviour, how we live, how we talk, how we behave, what we do, what we watch, what we listen to and so on, all should be shaped by the word of God. Everything should be moulded and conformed to God's word. And this is what Jeremiah begins to do here from uh, verse 26 onwards. And so having now got this clearer apprehension of the Lord's unfailing character and now having this correct understanding of his afflictions, he now begins to, to act. And this evening I want to reflect on this one way that he responds here. As I said, there's one particular theme, one particular action that runs all the way through. Um, it's the predominant theme of these verses and it's the theme which hinges on this apprehension of God's character and it's summarised for us really in verse 26. Jeremiah says it's good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. And so the action, the theme that runs through these verses is a hoping and a waiting upon God. If I was to entitle this section I'd call it just that, hoping and waiting on God. Jeremiah's anxiety and sorrow, they dissipate and in its place we see him calmly waiting, hoping upon the Lord. Now some of the commentators um, describe what Jeremiah says here as a resignation to God's will. Jeremiah has resigned himself to the Lord's purposes. He's settled in his mind on, on trusting the Lord. And that's certainly true, that's one way of describing it, but uh, what I don't like about that statement is the word resigned, because uh, in my mind it sounds quite negative. The impression given, when I think when we use that word, is that Jeremiah sort of slumped down in his chair, he has sort of thrown his hands in the air, he's sort of resigned to the fact that this is the way things are going to be, and uh, he's sort of got to just accept it and get on with life. But here in verse 26, the words are far more positive, this is not the attitude of fatalism or just sort of a passive acceptance. Rather, Jeremiah is going to positively hope, positively wait on the Lord. And uh, this follows what Jeremiah is doing here, really follows what Paul expresses in Romans uh, chapter 5. Remember what Paul says there at the very beginning. Um, Romans 5 and verse uh, three and four there, he says that but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And so you really you have here in Lamentations the same, the tribulation is working patience, that's the, uh, the waiting, patience experience, and experience Hope And Jeremiah's come to realise this here in, in Lamentations 3. In a sense, he sees there's no need to indulge in complaining and murmuring. That only increases our irritation. No, rather, he's going to humbly submit himself under God's 
hand. You think of 1 Peter 5 verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And Jeremiah is now doing this. He's humbled himself under God. We thought about that in verse 20. He's now humbled. And his language, you notice, has changed as well. Remember how we noted in verses 1 through to 21, it was all personal. It was I and my. I am the man of affliction and so on. My soul and so on, all the way through. But now that he's, he's wrestled with the Lord and he's come through victorious, he's He's now keen to use his experience to tell others so that they may be delivered. It's as if uh, Jeremiah is saying now, well, look, if the Lord has delivered me from my despair, he can deliver you too. You know, if his dealings with me have been gracious, if he has dealt with me compassionately, surely he can deal with you too in this way. And so now from this point on, he's really commending uh, his experience And he's commending to us, hoping and and waiting, quietly waiting. You notice what it is that he's waiting for, what he's hoping for. Notice what it says there in verse 26. Quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. That's what he's waiting and hoping for. Salvation here, it speaks of deliverance, divine deliverance out of trouble. And that's what Jeremiah's as it were, pinning his hopes. That's what he's waiting for. And those two words there, hoping and and waiting, help us to understand something about this salvation. Because uh, to hope implies that the deliverance can't yet be seen. It means the deliverance is still unknown. And the word wait implies that he doesn't know the time of this deliverance. He needs to be patient. The details are unknown to him, but... He's still going to hope and wait because he knows that this salvation is assuredly going to come. Of course, God's people never hope and wait in vain. And what the prophet is ultimately speaking of here when he speaks of the salvation of the Lord is the coming of the Messiah. That's the real, the ultimate uh, fulfilment of what he is saying. He's waiting for the coming of Christ, the sending of God's Son into this world, the That expression there, salvation of the Lord, really is a title for Christ. He is uh, the salvation of the Lord personified. And that's what he's waiting for. Of course, that's what all the Old Testament saints were hoping and waiting for. He's waiting for this deliverer, this saviour to come. Jeremiah seeks to be delivered, yes, from his present trials and his present afflictions, but ultimately he's looking beyond that. And he's looking for this greater deliverance, this deliverance from sin, the deliverance from Satan. He knew, of course, the Lord had promised this. And, of course, what the Lord promises, he always fulfills. And so that's what he's hoping and waiting for here. He's waiting, ultimately, for the coming of the Saviour. And, of course, likewise, as New Testament believers who look back upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're still hoping and waiting for the salvation of the Lord. We're waiting for the return of Christ, aren't we? We're waiting and hoping for that final salvation, for the redemption of our bodies. You remember how Paul speaks about that in Romans and chapter 8, verse um, 23 and following. He sp- speaks there about um, the first fruits of the Spirit, that even we ourselves groan within ourselves, in verse 23, waiting for the adoption 
to it the redemption of our body. And then he says, for we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. And so this is what we're waiting for, isn't it, as as believers, we long for the day when we shall see and experience the final aspect of the Lord's salvation when Christ comes again in glory and power. And just as Jeremiah did not hope and wait in vain, so we too, we know that the return of Christ, it will happen. And that final salvation will assuredly come for his people. We don't know when, but the Lord has promised. So we hope and wait and So Jeremiah here says this is what he's doing, waiting, hoping for the salvation of the Lord. And then he goes on to really describe in the next few verses what this hoping and waiting is about really. What he he speaks about there in, in verse 27 about it being good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth while one is young. Jeremiah of course had been called to the prophetic office when he was a young man and he had had to bear reproach. He'd had to bear the uh, reproach of his enemies all his life. And uh, it was good for him because it had prepared him for the trials that lay ahead later in life. And so he uh, had cultivated this spirit of quiet waiting. And in verse 28, he then speaks of sitting alone as he's quietly waiting and hoping upon the Lord's. And it speaks really of him withdrawing himself from the world and all its vanities. He's seen their worthlessness through his trials. And so he's now resolved, in a sense, to be crucified to the world. Of course, affliction often does this, or it should do this to us, shouldn't it? It helps us to gain a true perspective of this world, and it should help wean us from this world to look at all its pleasures, all the worldliness, all its comforts, and to realise that they're, they're nothing more than vanity. And I think that's what Jeremiah is speaking of here. He draws himself aside, he sits alone, and he says that he's silent. There's no murmuring now, no complaining, no rash words. Rather, he sits in a silent submission under the will of God. And he elaborates on this in verses 29 and 30 there, the picture he draws is of a, of a man bowing down to the ground. He has his mouth in the dust. It's someone who's fallen prostrate on the floor, showing you know, homage and obedience and lowliness. And this is the posture that he's now going to have before the Lord. He's, he's going to be, uh, as it were, submitting to him, bowing before him. And in verse 20, uh, rather verse 30, he talks about giving his cheek to him that smiteth him. He He's going to turn the other cheek when persecution comes. He's showing really here a humble trustfulness despite being reproached and mocked. And of course, as you read those words, you can't help, can you, think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ commanded us to love our enemies and to do this very thing, didn't he? To turn the other cheek. Remember the words in Luke 6, verse 29. He says, unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And of course, Jesus not only said this, but he demonstrated it, didn't he? Think of um, Isaiah and chapter 15. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ there, Isaiah chapter 15 and uh, verse um, 6. 
Isaiah 15 and verse 6, he says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. And so again we see here in Lamentations, Jeremiah the weeping prophet, picturing being a type of our saviour. But then in the remaining verses, Jeremiah gives a number of reasons why he's come uh, to this position of hoping and waiting, why it is that he's now resigned to the will and the purposes of God. And the first reason that he gives is because of God's tenderness. We see this in verses 31 through to verse 33. He says there in verse 31, For the Lord will not cast off forever. And he gives here a, a wonderful, a cheering, as it were, assurance to the people of God. They may feel like they've been abandoned, but it's only temporary. God will never cast off his people forever. Of course, this was something that Isaiah had uh, sought to comfort the people with. You remember, um, there was Isaiah prophesying that all these things would take place, that the people would be sent into exile, and he And he warns them, you're going to feel abandoned by the Lord. But the Lord had words of comfort for them. If you just turn with me to Isaiah 49, we see this um, so clearly. Isaiah 49 and verse 14. He says to them, look, this is, I know how you're going to feel, Zion. I know how you're going to feel while you're in exile. In verse 14, it says that Zion said, the Lord have forsaken me. And my Lord hath forgotten me. He says, this is what you're going to be like when you're carried away. You're going to say, where's the Lord? The Lord's abandoned us. But then the Lord gives these wonderful promises. Verse 15, can a woman forget her sucking child? That she should not have compassion on the son of her womb. Yea, they may forget. Yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I've graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me and so on. The Lord says, you're going to feel like you've been abandoned, but, but I haven't abandoned you. And uses this wonderful picture of the, uh, a mother's love for her child. He says, you know, even they can forget, yes. When I was in North America, some of the hospitals have a box outside where a mother can take her child if she no longer wants it, and she can place the child in that box and leave anonymously and leave the, the child at the hospital. And God says, yes, a woman may do that. But can I forget you? He says, no, I will never forget you. Behold, I've graven thee upon the palms of my hands. And so Jeremiah waits and he hopes here because he knows the Lord is tender. The Lord will not forget. He will not cast off forever. And he says, yes, he he may cause grief in verse 32 there. Yes, he may chastise us. Yes, he may afflict us because we've sinned. The Lord may do that, but he will not cast off forever. David Dixon says, God may have pity in his heart and yet strike with his hand. That's what the Lord does. He does afflict. He does uh, bring uh, grief to his people at times because he is chastising his people, but he does not afflict willingly, he says in verse 33. The word willingly there, uh, literally translated, means from the heart. In other words, the Lord does not take pleasure in bringing sorrow and pain and and suffering upon his children. 
God is not eager to you know, impose affliction and grief. He doesn't delight in it. His justice may demand it, but God is tender, he's compassionate, he deals with us according to the multitude of his mercies, he says there in verse 32. He's a tender father. And as children of God tonight in Christ, what a comfort this is should be to us. We may feel at times that we are cast off, but it cannot be so. He does not cast off forever. Job felt like this. David even felt like this. You remember what he says in Psalm 13? Those words at the very beginning of the psalm, Psalm 13 and verse 1. He says, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Forever? Lord, are you going to forget me forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? But even David, by the end of the psalm, says, I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. And we see, don't we, that, that the Lord will not forsake his people. Even uh, the forsaking of Christ was only for a time. You remember how Christ, he felt that, didn't he? On the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He felt abandoned. But by the end of the psalm, you know, in Psalm 22, he says, doesn't he, how he, you see how it all comes full circle in a sense. In Psalm 22 and uh, verse 24, he says, For he hath not despised, nor abhorred the affliction of the, affliction, the afflicted. Neither hath he hid his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he heard. And so that even the Lord Jesus Christ, there in his, as a man, he felt the Lord had forsaken him. But it was not forever. And friends, tonight, we, in a sense, we should treasure these words. Uh, These words of lamentations here should be written upon our heart because we don't know what a day may bring forth, do we? We don't know what trials and afflictions may be round the corner for some of us and uh, there may be some great difficulty. So we should remember these words so that when we fall into that place like Jeremiah did, we can look up and we can say, but the Lord, he will not cast us off forever. But Jeremiah moves on to a second reason why he's waiting And hoping in the Lord. And the second reason is because of God's justice. And this we see here in verses uh, 34 to 36. The prophet describes what's happened to uh, many of the people. Talks about being crushed under his feet or the prisoners of the earth. Uh, It's this idea that uh, they're just being ground into powder. You remember the Babylonians, they were unsparing. They were cruel when they came crushing and killing captives. And Jeremiah, no doubt, had witnessed awful, inhumane practices. War often brings great cruelty, doesn't it? And uh, he sees this going on, this crushing under feet. He sees people, prisoners, being put down. And in verse 35, he moves on to speak of justice being subverted. The courts of law had become bent and corrupt. If, uh, as a Jew, you went to take up a legal matter, you know, false witnesses would be used. Uh, he talks about the right of man being turned aside. Everything was unfair and unjust. And again, we, we can pause here, just think of these two verses, three verses here. We think of Christ, don't we? How he was cruelly treated in the Garden of Gethsemane and bound and taken 
He was crushed and bruised as he was placed on trial. And then he was placed in a court that was supposedly all done before the face of the Lord, as you, as you read there, before the face of the Most High. They, they pretend it's all done before, before God's. Supposedly, remember in the trial of Christ, it was all acting on God's behalf. But all the while, justice was perverted, wasn't it? Truth was suppressed. But Jeremiah knows in verse 36 that, all, that while all these things are going on, all this injustice, he says there at the end, the Lord approveth not. The Lord could see the oppression, he could see the cruelty, he noticed every unjust act and Jeremiah knew that the Lord is just, that he is the, the righteous Lord who loveth righteousness. Jeremiah knew that he was to leave these matters in the hands of almighty gods. He knew that these crimes had not gone unnoticed. And I think this is particularly pertinent for uh, Christians today in the Western world. And there may be times in our lives when we, we may be cruelly treated as God's people. It seems this is increasingly likely, isn't it? The courts may turn good into evil. We may be accused of crimes that we've never, we never did. This is something that I think we, we're seeing more and more, isn't it? Truth being pushed to one side, wickedness coming through, seeing justice perverted. I think even of this week of the ban on smacking children in Wales. How many Christian parents may face going to court for lovingly disciplining their children and so on. And you can imagine, can't you, a situation that the, you know, the prosecu- prosecution seeking everything in its power to present you know, a loving father or a loving mother to be some kind of monster, to be cruel against their children. But Jeremiah says here, even in such times when justice is perverted, he's going to hope and wait on the Lord. And this moves us on to a, a third reason that he gives here in these verses, because he then speaks about God's sovereignty. This is another reason why he's going to hope and wait for the salvation of the Lord. And he's there in verses 37 through to 39. He says, Who is he that saith, and it cometh to pass, when the Lord commandeth it not? Jeremiah says, you know, well, look, you know, who, who can make a decision or a decree outside of God's will or outside of God's purposes? And of course the answer is, well, no one can. We're all powerless, aren't we? We are his creatures. It's God alone who works and rules and decrees. Nothing happens without divine knowledge. Nothing happens without divine sanction. And his rule is absolute. His rule is universal. It's out of his mouth that everything happens. And it says here, even the good and evil. Good there is speaking really of blessing and prosperity. Evil conveys the sense of adversity. God is the the great ruler. He's the one who brings everything to pass, the good and the evil. And of course, our lives may be a mixture of these things. It may be a mixture of prosperity and adversity. Grace is mixed with chastisement. Affliction is tempered with God's compassion. We sung those words a moment ago, didn't we? With mercy and with judgment, my web of time he wove. And how true that is of our lives. There's sorrow, but it's lustered with his love. And uh, all the way through our lives, we see these elements mixed together. 
the cup that we may have to drink in this life may be a mixture of bitter and sweet. But God is sovereign. And in verse 39, Jeremiah says, well, we have nothing then to complain about. The key word in that verse there, in verse 39, is the word living. He says, wherefore doth a living man complain? And he's saying, look, if you have life, what, what more do you need? Whatever we have life, we have no reason to murmur against God. If he rebukes us for our sins, why, why should we complain? Because he's given us life, he's given us everything. And of course, especially as God's children, we extend this because we have spiritual life. Life through Christ. We've been delivered from hell. And therefore, whatever is, is less than the eternal torment is mercy. And so we ought to patiently endure it. Whatever we experience in this life, whatever trials, they're temporary trials. God's punishments, of course, may smart for a time, but but they don't last for eternity. And so Jeremiah says, well, I'm going to hope and wait, quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord because the Lord is sovereign and I'm not going to complain or murmur because I have life. But the last, the fourth thing that Jeremiah shows us why he's going to hope and wait. The fourth thing that's spurring him on is God's vindication. And that's, we have to jump down. We didn't read these verses, but from verses 59 through to the end, he speaks and he pleads with the Lord. He says, O Lord, thou hast seen my wrong, judge thou my cause. Thou hast seen all their vengeance, all their imaginations against me. He speaks about the reproach that has been thrown towards him. The lips that have risen up against him in verse 62. Uh, He's their music in verse 63. The people have have laughed at him and mocked him. But in verse 64 he says, Render unto them a recompense, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. And he becomes to realise that the enemies of God will, will one day face their recompense. They will be rewarded according... Uh, to their hands. God will judge them. He will vindicate his people. And Jeremiah knows this is going to be true. And in a sense, it brings all the other elements together. It brings God's sovereignty, God's justice, God's tenderness all together. Because God is going to one day vindicate his people. And those last few verses there, apparently in some of the manuscripts, um, some of the manuscripts don't have it as imperatives. You see there it says, render unto them recompense. Rather, it has them as, uh, as futures, so you could read it like this. Thou shalt give unto them a recompense. Thou shalt render unto them a recompense. Thou shalt give them sorrow of heart. In other words, there's a certainty to it. Jeremiah knows this is, is going to happen. And so that's why he's calmly resting. That's why he's calmly hoping and waiting upon the Lord, because he knows God will punish the wickets. And so he leaves vengeance with the Lord. And of course that's what we must all do. God in his time will deal with the wicked. It may appear to be slow in coming, but we should hope and wait. And these final verses here, they they remind us that God is the one who can frustrate the schemes of the wicked. It's God who can turn their music there in verse 63 into sorrow of heart in verse 65. 
It's, it's, he's the one who just, you know, with a breath of his nostrils can destroy them and overthrow their plans. And just as Jeremiah prays here against the Lord's enemies, that should be a part of our prayers. You know, we shouldn't pray such things in spite or bitterness or out of some kind of revenge. But we should pray like uh, David does. You remember how David prays in Psalm 68? At the beginning of that psalm, he says there, Psalm 68, verse 1, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let them also that hate him flee before him. And, and he goes on with his prayer, but he says, Look, you know, God, will you not scatter your enemies? Will you not uh, make these people flee? Will you not deal with them? Of course, we should, we should pray like this too. What we... Seek is the honour of God. We should have a concern for the gospel. That God would make his arm bare, that he would scatter his enemies, that they would flee. What we seek, isn't it, that Satan would be stopped. And that God would thwart his plans and the plans of those who would oppose the church. That they would have a sorrow of heart, as he says here. That he would prevent wickedness and bring all the schemes of the devil tumbling down. And so even as we come to pray tonight, let's bring this into our prayers. Let's pray for such things that Christ would overthrow his enemies and that the, the church would know his blessing as he would ride on prosperously because of truth. But just one final thing just as I, as I close uh, this evening. Just look again with me at verse 64. Here's this prayer, render unto them or he says, Thou wilt render unto them a recompense, O Lord. But he says they're according to the work of their hands. And that expression there at the end, according to the work of their hands, it's, as I thought about that, it re, I think it reminds us, doesn't it, that the divine punishment is always in proportion to man's sins. And so sinners will receive their just deserts. And in a sense, that should make us pray, shouldn't it? Even more for the ungodly, that they would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in another sense, it should also make us very thankful, shouldn't it? We're not going to receive the just deserts for our sins. We are not going to be rewarded according to the work of our hands, because Christ has borne it. And so how thankful we should be tonight that Christ has died for our sins, that he's borne the grief, the punishment, the sorrow that we deserved, that the wrath of God fell upon him, that it was he that, as it were, had that recompense. It was he that suffered that sorrow of heart in our place. And so how thankful we should be. And bless the Lord for Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us.